Hello, welcome to another episode of the Ripple in Pages podcast. Great writers making waves with the word, all in conversation with me, Liam Bishop. And today, I'm joined by Jeff Chon. He's here to talk to me about his book, Hashtag Good Guy with a Gun. Now, before we get into today's episode and the introduction, I'd just like to say that there are issues that we discuss of a sensitive nature, and there are instances of strong language in the reading that Jeff provides. Thank you. And enjoy today's episode. Jeff John's stories and essays have appeared in Seneca Review, Barrel House, among others, and it's his debut novel, Hashtag Good Guy with a Gun, which we're here to discuss today. As Alex Diggins put it in 3AM magazine, John's novel gives us no pat solutions to America's gun problem, or its angry young men problem, or its angry young men with guns problem, but it tackles these topics with fluency, wit, and a dancing, stinging charm. It's a deeply humane book about our inhumane times, and that at the moment feels quite enough. I couldn't have put it better myself, and Jeff is here to join me to discuss Hashtag Good Guy With A Gun, published by Sagging Meniscus Press. I just wondered if we could start by exploring the central conceit of this novel. Uh, And I say conceit because I don't want to say what it actually is that this novel focuses around, even though it becomes very quickly apparent in the first few pages, but... I wonder if you could start by just talking a bit about the start of this novel and the main character's involvement in it, and in particular, who is Scott Bonneville? The, the conceit of the novel is is turning the whole, um, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun nonsense kind of on his head. You know, I mean, that's the saying we have stateside with guns rights activists. They love to say that all the time whenever there's any kind of gun violence, they say that there's not enough guns. You know, if there were more guns, it would have gotten fixed. Um, so I, I started there with this idea of that, you know, because and because the, th- the thing we've learned about these good guys is, you know, the thing we've learned is with all these gun deaths and mass shootings is that everyone with a gun thinks they're the good guy. You know, George Zimmerman thought he was the good guy before he murdered, you know, that kid, Trayvon Martin. You know, the Virginia Tech shooter thought he was striking a blow for the down the downtrodden you know if you read his manifesto it's very clear and they always have a manifesto which makes it sound like they're a good guy and then you know like who else uh, mark david chapman you know the, the guy who killed john lennon thought he was literally an agent of god you know so that he was punishing john lennon for saying he was bigger than jesus so you know it got me thinking about that and maybe that you know they're all bad guys with guns you know but they seem to think they're good guys and, and that was where I started, you know, this idea of they, you know, we, we ascribe honor to people with guns in this country, you know, cowboys, right? You know, things like that. Um, the thing, the thing, it's interesting. Um, I remember I met this historian once, he was a cowboy historian, you know, <laughs> and I know he was a cowboy historian because he had a big Stetson and his push broom mustache and all of that. And he told me that uh, most of the fatal gunshot wounds in the old West you know, where, where guys shot in the back, which I thought was fascinating, you know, which is kind of this idea that, you know, the, the, the cowboy myth that there's honor among cowboys, you know, that, that none of that was really true. You know, with Scott Bonneville, who is the main character of this book, I wanted to kind of answer the question of, you know, what if this person everyone considers to be a good guy with a gun was just another bad guy with a gun, you know, but he happened to be at the right place at the wrong time. 
And that's kind of where it all started. Um, and Scott Bonneville, uh, he is a man who under the strain of like personal failure and professional failure reaches his breaking point. He goes in, doesn't he? So we, the start of the novel, we see um, Scott going to a pizza gallery um, and he's going to, he thinks that he's, as we later find out, this, is this, a, this isn't a spoiler, is it, Jeff? So no, 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 this is all early stuff. <laughs> yeah, we later find out that he thinks it's a, a paedophile ring enclosed within pizza galley. Um, and he's effectively going to write that, I guess. So he's going to sort of you know, solve what he thinks is a problem. And as he gets there, finds that there is another man, uh, David, Dave Brightman, who yeah, is Brightman. going to shoot his partner, who's been having an affair with another employee and it's this you start off the novel don't you by telling this small i believe it's south korean folklore um, yeah yeah joe sing saja the uh you know who is the emissary of death who's like you know the korean grim reaper so to speak although there's you know a little more complicated than that of course but yeah, yeah of course and you well either way you start by talking about this this small tale uh, of this from South Korean folklore, Joe Song Saja. And it kind of sets up the novel, I thought, within this kind of framework of good guys, bad guys, and also a kind of mythical kind of fortune element because ultimately, well, as Dave Brightman thwarts, thwarts Scott's mission, doesn't he? So I wonder, you know, when you were setting out to start this, and we're speaking about the cowboy myth and this, this idea of honor, is Scott a problem or is he a product of the culture in which you were writing about? Because there's a lot of ideas in there, isn't there? There's a lot of kind of, you know, cultural kind of, it comes at the end of sort of Trump, Trumping politics, or it comes at the start of the Trump election, and there's a lot of kind of very sort of zeitgeist kind of themes in there. Um, huh. Is he a product or the problem? I. Yeah, it's it, the thing I've learned these past four years <laughs> in, is the product sometimes is the problem, <laughs> you know? And, and I wonder if that's what it is when it comes to us, you know, as Americans, maybe what we've done is somehow make the product itself the problem. How was it? How did you set out to write this book with those kind of things in mind, but sort of achieving this kind of humanity to it? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I feel like, you know, somebody said this about this book, which was that, you know, I started with what should have been the climax early. You know, that, that you know, this inciting action of the, the shooting at the pizza galley was something that, you know, might have been dragged out, you know, by someone else. And I felt like that was important for me to start with that and then kind of do like a forensic, you know, examination of why that happened and and you know through that it's it's you know it was a little easier to feel a little more compassion for these people when you start thinking about the why things happened instead of you know looking at things in terms of like sequence as you know this happened and this happened and this happened you know where you know i wasn't looking to write a and then what happened kind of story I was looking more to write a why did this happen kind of thing. And I think that's where 
it became, you know, a little, maybe a little more of the compassion came out, although I definitely don't, you know, I honestly don't like any of these characters, which was an odd thing to, to feel, to have, you know, just to feel just hatred for these people, even though I was trying to figure things out. And I think that, you know, earlier I talked about breaking points, and I think that's what I was trying to look for is what was the breaking point, you know, for Scott. And, you know, we like to think about breaking points as this idea of, you know, like the, the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, right? That old saying. It seems to write as contemporary novelist in America, you are piercing through myths and not yeah. only myths, you know, myth makers, the, you know, there seems to be, it seems the engine for myth making has sort of started back up again in the last four years with, with Trump and, you know, Trump's politics. I just wondered if, you, if this is something you're conscious of as a writer, as a novelist, you said this was a novel about why did this happen as opposed to how did this happen? Do you think that is a role that, do you think that's something that we should be doing, should be doing more as novelists or less as novelists or, you know, is a novelist marginalized in that respect? Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy the why things happened. You know, for me, I, I you know, I started out as an essayist and, and a lot of essays are about why things happened. You know, a lot of, you know, where you're looking at things, you know, in, you know, in that way a little more. And it was just, um, so, you know, and the idea of mythology, you know, I start with a myth, you know, at the beginning, which, you know, it's, it's you know, the funny thing about that myth is, is it's not a real South Korean myth, I made it up. You know, having that actually helped me a lot. So there's this whole idea of myths and, you know, the things we tell ourselves, which, which kind of really permeates, you know, the book, which, you know, with all the urban legends and all the conspiracy theories and all the little, you know, old wives tales that are told, you know, throughout the book, I, you know, there, there is a lot of myth making that's going on. And, and I wanted to kind of show that, you know, this conspiratorial thought that, you know, the QAnon stuff that we see, you know, we think that that's something new, but, you know, we've, we've been lying to ourselves for a very long time. And, and, and it was very important for me to kind of get this idea of myth-making across, you know, then, you know, with the father who created this own myth about the end of the world, you know, and all of these things. So it was just, it was, you know, it was, it, so for me, it was important to kind of show how we start to, you know, you know, convince ourselves to believe things in order to make living a little easier. And once I was able to figure out that that's what Scott was doing, that, you know, he was very good at lying to himself and believing these lies, it became a little easier to, you know, paint and maybe a little more layered, you know, portrait of him rather, you know, as opposed to a compassionate one, because I, I still don't know how compassionate I was towards him, because I think that He's pretty awful. <laughs> you know, within the novel, there is a sense of, you know, there's a sense of compassion and care, perhaps for victims. But, I mean, this, like, the structure of this novel is, um, we talked about how this, this, this incident at the start, but the structure of the novel is, sets you up to answer, you know, why does this happen, doesn't it? And it, it allows you to build up Scott's backstory. And I just wondered if, you know, perhaps following on from this idea of, um, Scott's story and you not having a lot of liking for Scott um, what are you expecting from the reader here you know I guess I primarily am a reader and I don't know if that's something that's built into your process but why did you choose to build up 
the novel in this way? And how did you expect the reader to react to Scott and his actions and his and some of the incidents from his life? Well, I, you know, when I was writing this thing, I wanted it to be kind of, you know, to show the person behind the action a little more than the and then focus on the action itself. Because I, I mean, this novel could have very easily become a current events or an issues kind of novel, you know, and I, I, that's not what I wanted. So I had to find this way to populate it with people. And, and I think that's kind of what I want the readers to see is that, you know, these are people, you know, we may not like them, but they're people, you know, and that was kind of what I wanted to get across. And, and this entire novel for, is, is about going down the rabbit hole, you know, so you know, there's a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, which, you know, is an obvious rabbit hole that, you know, shows up because, you know, we do these really strange deep dives into these beliefs Scott has and of the other character, Blake, you know, he, you know, all the weird things he's indoctrinated with. So, you know, if I was going to send a reader down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, I, I felt like I had to make sure that we also sent the reader down the rabbit hole of, you know, the conspirator as well you know, just to make sure that, you know, your feet are planted on the ground, because, you know, it's my belief is that you know, people are what plant feet on the ground, whereas ideas are kind of up above us. And I didn't want this to be about ideas, but people. So, you know, a lot of what I was trying to do was, you know, humanize them without necessarily, you know, you don't have to like someone to humanize them, you know, and, and that was kind of what I wanted to do was, was, you know, humanize these strange, you know, horrible human beings. <laughs> Blake's the son of Lisa, who Scott teaches Blake, doesn't he? And 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 he gets with with uh, Blake's brother Lisa. Yeah. Blake's a really interesting character because you really, you start to bring him into um, the novel as you go on as well. Was was there a kind of difference between Blake and Scott, and you know what sort of what Blake has to see and put up with. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that was, was Scott, by the time we see Scott, he's fully radicalized, I think. And with Blake, I wanted to kind of show the gradual radicalization a little more. And, um, and so I think that was, you know, very important for people to see that. Blake was, you know, not even going to be in this book at one time. And I felt, you know, I need to add someone else a little bit so we can kind of see a little more how someone becomes like Scott. And, and I think that was, you know, the purpose of Blake. There is a, there's a, the real, there's a real sharpness. There's a real sort of satirical, I don't know satirical so much, but there's a sharpness to the novel. And I don't know if this is the case or not, but I felt like there's kind of, you were playing with also a kind of pulpy, you know, pulp element to either culture or the novel that was ingrained within it. You know, and the, the actions of Scott and his subsequent viral fame where hashtag good guy with a gun becomes this, becomes this viral sensation, doesn't it? Because he's seen as this hero at the pizza galley shooting for shooting Dave Brightman. And it kind of made me in mind that idea we've sort of talked about of making heroes, this idea of heroes out of ordinary men. I wondered, you know, how do you think this novel sits alongside them? Not only conspiracies and sort of dark conspiracies, but also quite, you know, very common and mainstream cultural ideas we have of heroes. For me, I think the obvious parallel is probably a taxi driver, which, you know, was on my mind while I was writing this book quite a bit because, 
you know, at the end of that movie, Travis is hailed as a hero when he is in fact a monster, you know, and that, that the ending of that movie is horrifying to me. It's just a terrifying ending that, you know, this man is still loose on the streets. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it kind of falls within that realm of, you know, anti-hero, although, you know, it's kind of a monster, I guess, right? You know, this, there, there's another movie called Falling Down. Have you seen that one with uh, Michael Douglas? He plays a man who is trapped in a uh, traffic jam in Los Angeles and just gets out of his car and just snaps and then goes on this kind of crime spree. I, th I remember a scene where th th there was a neo-Nazi who finds him and knows he's been committing all these crimes and tries to ingratiate himself to him. And Michael Douglas keeps saying, no, no, I'm not like you. I'm not like you. When, you know, he is in fact exactly yeah. like him, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I, I think it does fall in that kind of realm of, you know, this, this idea of busting this myth of people with guns, although we tend to love people with guns, and you know, Death Wish is another one, right? I mean, you know, people watched that movie and thought Charles Bronson was, was a hero instead of this profoundly damaged human being, you know? And I hear there was the, the author of the novel Death Wish wrote a sequel, which was a rejection of the movie, <laughs> where, you know, the, the character goes after another character who's inspired by him. And it was supposed to be a rejection of what the movie did with the book, which I think the book was supposed to be a little more of a character study of a broken man, I think. But yeah, I think the ways that we do lionize vigilanteism in this country is, is really, you know, gross. That's the only way to describe it, right? I mean, there are people, I mean, you know, there were people who wanted to hang the vice president of the United States, you know, because they thought it was some kind of frontier justice. You know, I mean, this is kind of what we've done and we've just damaged ourselves. And then, you know, as far as vigilanteism goes, the Punisher logo has gotten so out of hand that, you know, the creator of that character came out to disavow it because it's been, he saw it so many times used by these militia types and things like that. So I think that it, it it's in that kind of realm to me where, you know, of, of these damaged people and, you know, it's, I'm not going to, you know, I'd be a liar if I didn't tell you that while I was writing this, I was worried that people would take this the wrong way and think, yeah, this guy's the way it's done. In 1966, Robert F. Kennedy gave a speech in which he invoked the existence of a Chinese curse. May he live in interesting times. And while no one has ever been able to authenticate this curse's Chinese origin, these were indeed the interesting times those fictional men of China spoke of. Three days after the Pizza Gallic shooting, a man many felt was grossly unqualified was elected President of the United States. There isn't much to say about that really, at least not right now, other than this. A year before this man's inauguration, the site where a women's crisis center was being constructed was vandalized by a group of sad, hopelessly stupid young boys. The vandal spray-painted slut and whore on the sidewalk in front of the newly installed glass door, which they'd shattered so they could make their way inside. Once inside, they shat on the carpet, smeared their shit on the walls and windows. The next afternoon, the papers reported the culprits were 16-year-old boys who belonged to an internet message board known as the Half-Minute Brigade, calling themselves by this unfortunate name because, as one of their ranks had so elegantly put it, Minutemen take too fucking long. 
Because these were all angry boys who'd been mocked their entire lives, they'd never once considered the comedic implication of young men bragging about doing anything in 30 seconds. And that's the issue with boys like this. They always ask for it. Always make it so goddamned easy. Do you think there's a common trait here that we buy into, even perhaps as readers that are reading, you know, quite sort of literary fiction? Do we do we buy into something as readers? Do we sort of believe things too much? Appropriate characteristics, and is this why you've sort of gone out with a novel in this direction? Yeah, I think we do buy into a lot. I mean, we've, you know, we we look at horrible characters and think they're cool, right? You know, it's the whole Fight Club thing. You know, it was a critique on masculinity. And then all of a sudden, all these young men were starting fight clubs, which is kind of the opposite of what he wanted you to do. So I, I think that, you know, we do read things. And I think that, you know, when we empathize with a character, we buy into these things, you know, like, you know, Clockwork Orange, I think, was the same way, way back when that people were really starting to emulate the droogs from that movie, which is also terrifying when you think about it. You know, George Zimmerman still has a huge following of admirers, which is horrifying. I, I wish this book felt more ridiculous, you know, and, 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 and I thought it did at the time, but I'm starting to realize that, you know, just from the reaction I'm getting from, you know, people, you know, who've read it that I've been lucky enough to hear from, I think it's, you know, yeah, this is real life. <laughs> And it's just kind of terrifying that, you know, the stuff with Blake, you know, the, the funny stuff, which, you know, like the, the thing you're talking about, the pornography and all of that. I, when I was writing it, I was laughing because I thought it was so ridiculous. And, and then I realized, you know, later as I was revising this stuff, that eh, this is no more ridiculous than anything these guys do right now. You know, that and the Gatorade and, you know, these, these people, the Proud Boys and, you know, these incel groups, they're just ridiculous human beings who do ridiculous things like this so it's validating and horrifying at the same time <laughs> yeah there's there's a lot in there about you know masculinity and you know you do come at it you do come at it with i would say a very sort of you know zeitgeisty angle you really sort of tie into i think you really get to the heart of some you know insecurities really cultural ideas that we have of insecurities of masculinity and myths. I think the key word is myths and it's it, the you know, things you brought up, the kind of real life George Zimmerman and the real life sort of instances, but also the, well, I guess cowboys are, you know, cowboys are real, aren't they? But the myths that we have around them and the, the kind of constant stream of images that we have, uh, we have around them. Yeah, we just, you know, we love these horrible things. <laughs> so Alex Dickens, and he picked out a lot of the kind of um, yeah, yeah, it's a really nice review of that. I mean, really, I thought it really framed it off nicely. Um, and he picks out some things that you know how it sort of frames kind of you know anti-immigrant resentment. I just went, yeah, I wonder what the choices were around that and, and Scott. And yeah, that was another straw, you know, on on the camel's back, so to speak, right? This idea that he's a Korean American with no real cultural sense of his identity because he didn't wasn't raised that way you know, because he was raised, you know, in a white kind of culture. And because of that, he feels this kind of extra layer of alienation that comes from not fitting in in either camp, you know, with the white sort of, you know, group or or the, the Asian group. He doesn't fit in there either, which I think comes out in the novel a couple times. 
And um, yeah, it, it was, you know, and I also wanted to write from a, you know, Korean character. And I wanted to populate it with more Korean characters because I felt like that was you know, important for me to tell that kind of story, you know, to tell us, you know, Scott Bonneville, I suppose, you know, could have been told from the point of view, you know, he could have been completely white, you know, with the name Scott Bonneville. And I think that also adds another layer when the re reader first meets him, you know, and you read Scott Bonneville, you think immediately that this is probably an Anglo person, right? And, yeah, you know, but yeah. then you get deeper, you start to kind of, you know, as the layers get, you realize that, oh, he's not, he's, he's Korean. Yeah. And, and that was a conscious choice as well, this idea of, you know, kind of muddling things a little bit because that's just how Scott is, you know, identity-wise. He doesn't kind of, he doesn't really fit in anywhere. It's such a fantastic name. Scott Bonneville, it seems to, it, it could, it strikes such a, uh, yeah, all-American name. Um, yeah. And then, it, like, you know, it's like I said, strip, strip the layers back on him. Um, the irony is, he, I, I, the, the name Bonneville, I came upon it. What was that show? It was an English show, Downton Abbey. <laughs> All right. Oh, Hugh Bonneville. God, of course, yeah. yeah. I thought, oh, that's a nice name, Scott <laughs> Bonneville, because I couldn't, couldn't come up with yeah. the last name. And I was like, Scott Bonneville. So the <laughs> All the time I was reading, I was like, where do I know Bonneville? I was like, that. Or maybe it's just some like American town somewhere, you know. Yeah. There was a car called Bonneville. I think it was a Cadillac Bonneville, I think, at one time. But, but yeah, okay. it was, I couldn't come up with the last Bonneville. name. Abby was <laughs> Fantastic. That works. Do you know what? I've never watched Nathan Abbey. But apparently America, it's massive over in, well, it's massive over here, but massive over in the States. No, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty big. I don't, it's a gigantic phenomenon here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems Because yeah, I, I think for the equivalent is, I think Mad Men is, is, big in the uk i think it's it's a cultural exchange kind of thing you know the, yeah i just wondered if we could talk a bit about um because there is a novel that is another novel that's mm -hmm. very important uh or it seems very important to you and central to this novel i just wondered if we could talk first then about capture uh capturing the rye by obviously salinger oh yeah um how you know how important is that to you how important was it for the formation? Because there's a lot of references, isn't there, within hashtag good guy with a gun. Yeah, it's, it's a huge part of the book, which is interesting. Um, it, I've always been fascinated by, you know, Catcher in the Rye and, you know, it's, it's kind of proximity to high profile murders, you know, throughout American history. Yeah. It's something that's, and, you know, all the conspiracy theories around that book are just really just fascinating to me because of that. And, it's one of those things that I've thought about a lot. And it, you know, I struggled with putting it in there because I thought, I thought ah, you don't want this book to do all the work for you. And then I just realized that, you know, I could really use this in a really nice way to use, you know, all the weird dark lore of Ketra and the Rye in this, you know, in this guy's mind, right? And uh, the fact that Scott was an English teacher in the book and the fact that that book is kind of like ubiquitous in, in American high schools just made that connection just natural. You know, if he's an English teacher in high school, he's going to have taught that book. So I thought, you know, and what would a person who's a little disturbed do with that book? You know, so that was kind of something that came about. And, you know, honestly, it's, it's a book I, 
happen to really enjoy, you know, and, and you know, the fact that so many people here hate it, <laughs> it, 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 it kind of makes it all the more worthwhile to me. <laughs> I think it's a fairly uh, unfairly maligned book, you know, that's, it's, it's set the gold standard for teen angst. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's just kind of, you know, he was kind of a victim of his own success, I think. It's just that, you know, he did such a good job capturing the way teenagers feel about the world that people started to hate it and accuse the book of being whiny because, you know, teenagers are kind of whiny, <laughs> you know. But yeah, that, that book, I think, does tie, you know, of course it does because I tied it. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, that book was very important, you know, aspect of my novel because, you know, a lot of that book is this idea of, you know, Holden Caulfield, realizing the world he knew no longer exists, you know, because of the death of his brother and all that. And that struck a chord with me, you know, as I was thinking about how to use the book, because, you know, I think a lot of this book is people realizing that the world they knew no longer exists, right? And, you know, he want, you know, Holden just wants life to go back to the way it was, you know, I think mostly by, you know, way of him going back to a time when he didn't realize the world was trash, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, Scott and Blake kind of feel the same way where they feel like they've gained this kind of enlightenment, you know, and they see the world as this horrible place. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I use this book in use Catcher in the Rye in ways that people criticize the book, which is that, you know, in this, you know, there's the whole memes, you know, there's a whole bunch of memes on Twitter about, you know, which books, you know, are red flags. You know, if you see this book on a guy's bookshelf, it's a red flag, right? It's always Catcher in the Rye is one of them. So I thought, well, yeah, let, let's kind of lean into that and make Catcher in the Rye an actual red flag, you know? So that, that was, you know, really fun for me to actually use all these weird, you know, things that have, kind of happened around that book, you know, with, with, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald and John Hinckley and, you know, all these guys who had copies of that book in their, on their bookshelves. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I'd not read, I never, you know, it's just one of the big sort of blots on my sort of reading. I never read Catcher in the Rye. And one of the things that put me off is, and this has always stuck in my mind, is interestingly, my English, my English teacher, back in the day, you know, 15, 16 years ago, and I said to me, or she said to the class, she said, um, she's, there was a choice between what books she could choose on the syllabus. And she chose Catcher. She didn't choose Catcher in the Rye. And she said, it's something like, it's one of those books you just won't appreciate reading beyond a certain age. And I was like, so I, you know, 30 year old, 30 year old now. And I was like, well, you know, that just sticks in my mind about this book. And this book, your book, Bed me go and read um, Capturing the Rye. And I was so glad that I did because it, it, it does do something. It does capture uh, a particular, um, yeah, teenage teenage angst and give a voice to that. And I think what's the kind of beauty of it as well is for me is that it was so, it speaks about misunderstanding and it speaks about, you know, so sort of not being listened to. And what do we take? When someone says something, what do we take seriously? You know, Scott's actions obviously had serious consequences. He went to the pizza guy and he went to shoot, you know, kill some people. Um, mm -hmm. And he inadvertently didn't do that. Holden says a lot of the times, you know, I, I could, you know, I could kill for this. Or, guy, you know, he says, 
you know, it's, it's that kind of idea, oh, this is Jeremy, you know, it's going to kill me, I'm going to kill someone because of this. And he says, you know, that idea a lot. And it's like, what what signals do we pick up from someone when they are saying these things, you know? When yeah. do we take these declarations seriously? Yeah, and that's, you know, I think Blake said the kind of the same thing after he read Catcher in the Rye. He said he wanted to burn the school down and then said, I'm kidding, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, and then Holden calls his red cap the people shooting cat hat which he has which is you know I, that struck me as oh yeah now i you know not of course because i i it's it was fun because as i was writing this novel i was rereading that book which i hadn't done i don't know how long you know since i was a kid you know so i reread it as an adult and it, it just it does hit differently as an adult when you're a kid then you're, yeah, you're, you're you know you're in it so you feel like oh this is this is what life is like and then when you read it as an adult, you kind of kind of see, you know, some of the points that he's missing and things like that. And it becomes a lot sadder. Yeah. He's just an angry guy who can't see things past his pain. It is, it is. And the, the end in particular strikes as uh, you know, really sort of sad. But yeah, I mean, would you advise readers, you know, perhaps that were like me, would you advise readers to go and uh, read Capturing the Rye if they were reading your novel? I would. I, I I will never tell people not to read that book. <laughs> I'm a little different because there are a lot of, you know, that book is kind of, it's unfashionable to like that book now, I think. Mm. And, and, you know, past a certain age, it's unfashionable to like that book. But, you know, I do enjoy it. And, you know, I tell people I enjoy it. And, you know, and then I tell them that I hope they stay mad about it. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that that book does tie, you know, that there are a lot of parallels because it was, you know, because it was on my mind as I was writing it, because I was reading it at the same time. It could help, but, you know, I mean, you don't have to. I mean, I think that the book is fairly self-contained and I give you everything you need to know from Catcher in the Rye, but, you know, it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a great American novel, you know? I mean, I don't think there's any way around it. Yeah, without a doubt, your novel does. And it stands apart and it's just, you know, it's, it's definitely not, you know, if anyone sort of implied that was suggesting there's any imitation, there's no kind of, it does stand apart. Um, and, but yeah, definitely for me, for me, it just helped me, it helped me sort of recapture a particular time in my life. I think, yeah. So I was sort of, sort of grateful for that, sort of that nudge yeah. that way again. Um, it's kind of to see what Blake's carrying in his soul, you know, <laughs> in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. But yeah, this is, this is, this was a lot of fun. I, you know, enjoy talking about, you know, this book. It's always interesting because, people ask these questions and you don't you know you, you didn't consider it you know because I just did an interview yesterday you know where it was like a you know a written one yeah and I looked at the question and I thought that you know the honest answer to that question is because I thought it was cool <laughs> <laughs> you know because the question was why didn't you name Trump in the book yeah see I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think about it yeah yeah yeah, and so and in my head I you know the, the, the true answer was well I just thought it was cool to do you know <laughs> did not name it <laughs> yeah it's really uh yeah i think it's fair i think i read a review that picked up on that and yeah, it, it, it is a really interesting it. it's an interesting device i think but um, yeah and so i had to come up with a reason why I, you know i had to really think about what that means but you know in my mind i just did it because i thought it was cool to call him the candidate and the person yeah. <laughs> and that was it but yeah so you know it's always interesting to think about this book yeah, you know, I would, you know, it's one of these you write it and then you revise it and then it just 
you know, it's kind of, you don't think about it really in the same way anymore. So yeah. It's um, there's a lot. There's a lot of theme there. There's a lot going on in it. Rewards, like I said, I was on my second reading. Um, the stuff, still stuff that you know you don't. I haven't picked up for. Like I said, the Trump thing, and uh, there's a lot going on in there. There's a lot of interesting things and a lot because you are sort of embedded with an idea, aren't you, of conspiracies, um, you know, plot holes and going down loops and rabbit holes and taking the reader down. Which is what happens yeah. with the re- uh, the characters, isn't it? You know, get caught up in these weird and wacky sort of. Um, but, yeah. but take yes. them, take very seriously. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for joining me. Hashtag good guy with a gun, published by Sagging Meniscus Press, is out now. Thank you. This was yeah, this was really fun. Thanks, Jeff, for joining me once again, and of course, thanks to you for listening as well. Hashtag good guy with a gun is published by Sagging Meniscus Press, and it's out now. Do join me next time where I'm going to be joined by Jessie Greengrass. She's here to talk to me about her new novel, The High House. Of course, if you'd like to get in touch, please do so by at rippling underscore pages, and that's on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to drop us a message, please feel free to do so at ripplingpagespod at gmail.com. That's ripplingpagespod at gmail.com. Otherwise, it's until next time. Thanks for listening.